y'all. This is Sam's Aunt Betty. This week on the show, host of the podcast, Yo, Is This Racist? Andrew T. And environmental reporter for Calmatics, Julie Clark. All right, let's start the show. Hey, y'all from NPR. I'm Sam Sanders. It's been a minute. Happy weekend to my listeners and to my guests. I've got two guests here in studio at NPR West who are coming on the show for the first time ever. Y'all nervous? Ooh. Yeah. Was I supposed to be? I'll keep no. you nervous. I'll no. be nervous. <laughs> Thank you both for being here. Andrew T., host of the podcast, Yo, Is This Racist? What up? Also a writer for ABC's Mixedish and Julie Cart, reporter for Cal Matters, covering the environment and the fires. I'm not sure I've ever had two guests whose topics of interest are so different. I'm not disinterested in the environment. <laughs> I just don't know anything about it. <laughs> well, I thank you both for being here. We're going to talk about uh, some big topics in the news this week, some heavy stuff. But before we get to that, I do want to take a second to play for you both the audio that made me the happiest this week. It's this cute little song that popped up on the internet uh, about dinosaurs. Dinosaurs eating people. Dinosaurs in love. Dinosaurs having a party. They eat fruit and cucumber. Is that not the cutest thing? Oh, my thing? God. <laughs> Don't you love... <laughs> Is your heart melting yet, Julie? That child. Yes, yes. So eating this... people. <laughs> How can you make eating people sound cute? They did it. It's, yeah. it's a vicious young child. <laughs> so this audio comes from a Twitter user and musician named Tom Rosenthal. He put this audio up this week. Uh, he says the story behind it is that his almost four-year-old daughter, Finn, wrote a song to herself all about dinosaurs. Uh, once he heard it, he was like, I like that. It's got potential. He helped her put music to it. Uh, and now it's like gone viral on the internet, and it seems to be more popular than any song Tom Rosenthal himself has written. <laughs> That's got to be satisfying as a father, or humiliating. Oh, oh yeah, yes, I'm sorry. <laughs> Every time I say satisfying as a father, I do ultimately mean humiliating. <laughs> all I know is, um, I would love for all of the news to be sung by children. Oh, isn't is that it an already? <laughs> Your joke beats mine. Some days it feels like it. I love it. I love it. All right. With that wonderful palate cleanser for the week, we're going to jump right into some big, heavy news stuff. Uh, Every week, I have my panelists describe their week of news in only three words. Uh, Andrew, you're going to go first because you have some thoughts about the story of the week, talking about coronavirus. This thing is here. It was declared a... um, public health emergency this week by the World Health Organization. More and more countries are saying we have cases here. Singapore and Mongolia have sealed their borders with China. This is getting big, Mm -hmm. but you've noticed something in the coverage of it, haven't you? Yeah, absolutely. And I'm going to, hopefully this doesn't uh, disqualify me three words because I'm going to use an acronym as one of my words. What is it? But my three words I thought of was MSG gotcha. Okay. Uh, MSG being? uh, Monosudio... Monosodium glutamate. Say that ten times fast. Monosodium <laughs> glutamate. Uh-huh. Um, and, and really, uh, I, I uh, can't stress enough, not a public health expert, uh, but what I am is an uh, Asian American person mm-hmm. who has dealt with my entire life this idea that Chinese food specifically, so I'm Chinese American, 
is gross. Mm-hmm. It's unhealthy. It's mm-hmm. unsanitary. Um, and uh, I think that that's the undercurrent sort of every time a pandemic comes up out of yeah. Asia. Well, there are these visuals of, you know, these open-air Chinese yes. food markets, you know, with the American or Brit journalists coming in saying, look at this and look at the food and da 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 And there are yeah. a lot of parallels to, you know, coverage of the SARS virus. Yeah. Do you think that the way that we talk about the origin of this virus and those markets and food culture of some Chinese people is wrong? Yeah, well, so there's nuance. There, of okay. course, there's, there's right ways to talk about it. And You know, there is an argument that those markets are not ideal. But the reporting on this tends to go towards exotifying uh, the the it, so there's basically like an orientalist air to it. Mm. Um, mm. There, there was one quote I pulled where um, they mentioned some sell unusual fare, including live snakes, turtles, and cicadas, guinea pigs, bamboo rats, badgers, hedgehogs, otters, palm civets, and even wolf cubs. Only one or two of those are relevant to this particular virus, particular story. Hmm. So a lot of yet they is, list the whole. Yeah, thing. it's sort of just about um, you know making this seem foreign and exotic. I mean, to me, I was like, if you can hear the sort of like Ching Chong music playing in the background <laughs> when you're reading the article in your mind's eye, yeah, um, that that's where where it sort of falls down. Um, and you know, I think the other thing that Americans in particular don't think about is that. We do these practices, we just put them behind, you know, where we can't see them in places like factory farms. Mm. You know, we have animals crammed up against each other in unsanitary conditions. Mm. And, and I think that it's just that the signifiers of Asianness and foreignness are really coming to bear yeah. um, in this, in yeah. the, the way people talk about the yes. pandemic. Yeah, but you also... Food is such a cultural touch point. I mean, you yeah. think about bushmeat in Africa, and there's some outbreaks associated with that. These are fo- this is where this is where their food comes from. So one culture's shark fin uh, pate, yeah, haggis, yeah, haggis. all of it. Yeah, I mean, like everyone has weird food practices. Yeah, I remember growing up. Folks in my family eating chitlins. It's not like Americans are like less. Oh yeah, into. Strange and strange is such a loaded word anyway, but yeah. strange food. And also in getting into the reasons that there are bushmeat, wild game um, markets. I mean, the fact is the rest of the world is not as uh, prosperous yeah. and as uh, food secure as yeah. places like America. And we are not great. Yeah. But like... Um, People eat what they have to eat to survive. Yeah. I want to talk more about MSG. Oh, yeah, You mentioned that in your three words. So MSG speaks to the general history of the way that we treat foods from Asia here in the U.S. You know, decades ago, Americans were scared of Chinese food because they thought the MSG was going to kill us. Yeah, or not just kill us, but the idea that um, Chinese food is dirty has its antecedents in... The wave of Chinese immigrants who were mm. very poor from, you, you know, mostly the Hong Kong, Canton region. Uh-huh. And those people were just kind of slinging whatever food they could and yeah. then modifying it towards American palates. And one of the things that uh, makes all food good is monosodium glutamate. Yeah. It is uh, the taste of good. It's sexy salt. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and... and There was uh, an article uh, in the 60s, I believe, that basically uh, started a thing called Chinese restaurant syndrome that 
was largely debunked mm-hmm. and, and contained just this idea that maybe it's the MSG in Chinese food that is giving uh, this this person um, like sweats and fever, sweats and, and fevers headache. and aches, which also is just basic overeating and or could yeah, be just ate to too much, dude. Yeah. And so this was disproven. And also Americans have MSG in everything, like yeah. Doritos. Yeah. That was my other option for three words is Doritos got MSG. <laughs> <laughs> You're listening to It's Been a Minute from NPR, the show where we catch up on the week that was. I'm Sam Sanders here at NPR West with two guests, Julie Cart, reporter for Cal Matters, and Andrew T., host of the podcast, Yo, is this racist? Also a writer for ABC's Mixed Dish. I think it's our first time that we've had like a TV writer in here. Highfalutin I, Hollywood type. I'm going to be absolutely frank. Um, I, there's a tiny chance I'm going to be late for work because of this. And I wanted that <laughs> plug in so my bosses won't get mad at me. Done. That is 100% this the reason. This will stay. Yeah. This will stay. Julie, you have three words about another story that's been in the news seemingly constantly, at least here in California, for years now. The wildfires. Wildfires in Australia. Yes, yeah. yes. So there are some parallels between what's going on there and going on here, huh? Yeah, there are. More than you might think. So my three words, and I'm going to cheat, but it's you know, okay. that's who I am. At least you said you're going to cheat. That's it. Now I, we know. I feel like if I just yes. say that I can, then I can get yeah. away with it, it. And if that sounds like the... The xenophobia thing. If I just <laughs> say I'm xenophobic... <laughs> it's cool, right? <laughs> Actually, I was thinking of impeachment, but okay. Oh. <laughs> okay. It's not an offense if I think it's for the common good. That's right. So, okay. My three words are are research, science, and self-reliance. And since that's hyphenated, that's, that we'll counts as one we'll idea. Thank you. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I wrote a while about, ago about the commonalities that California and the American West have with Australia in terms of fire. Okay. Landscapes are similar. Trees and plants that are growing are similar. Similar aridity, mm-hmm. experience of drought, and even the topography. So there's a lot going on that brings us together. And yeah. in fact, uh, until recent years... The firefighters in the West in our winter uh-huh. would go help Australian firefighters in their summer and oh, vice really? versa. But um, these are continents that are formed by fire. The American West have, has plants that need fire to, huh. to propagate and do all kinds of yeah. things. Uh, and the same is true for Australia. Um, but they have been studying it rather seriously for quite some time. And a lot of their research has informed policies that, that are adopted here in okay. Europe and, and also obviously in Australia. So they, yeah. they really rely on research to drive policy, and that is not exactly how we yeah. do things here. Well, we really just <laughs> right really. now don't have a comprehensive policy for this kind of stuff. I mean, California is trying to make some moves, but the federal government is not passing you know laws in D.C. that mandate certain types of you know fire mitigation. We're not doing that right now. No, we don't have a nationwide firefighting force. You have the U.S. Forest Service, um, and then California has an extremely robust, the, one of the largest firefighting forces in the world, including the largest aviation. We have more planes and helicopters huh. and bombers and all kinds of things at our disposal. So yeah. uh, we've taken up the slack, as most Western states have. Yeah. What is the biggest difference in the way – in the moment that Australia or versus California or the West will deal with the fire in terms of like the people on the ground stuck in this stuff? I think it's the self-reliance part of it. Uh, The Australian approach is born from uh, their mythology about themselves. We we tamed this continent and how rough and ready they are and and self-reliant. And it also comes from 
the reality that people are strung out on sheep stations hundreds of miles from any kind of water pump or anything, any yeah. help, any expected help. And they have to fend for themselves, which uh, Americans do as well in ranches and farms. But it, it's a bit more widespread there. So their approach is to train people. Who hmm. want to be trained? It's a high level of training. It's it's excellent. Train them to like stick around and fight at their house. Stay and defend. You, the The policy is either leave early, get the hell out of here, don't uh-huh. get in the way, don't put yourself in jeopardy uh-huh. or others, or if you choose not to do that, stay and defend your house, and it can be done. And the science has shown how sheltering in place in a house can actually work, uh-huh. and you know that sort of thing. Yeah. What are some of the things that Australia does now? that California could just, like, try to do tomorrow to help? Uh, One of the things, again, that that was born out of science, Uh um, they said to themselves, what's causing these fires? And the fires in which people die, what what are the cause of those fires? So since the 50s, 80% of the deaths from fire in Australia have come from utility lines. And we have a similar problem in the States uh, as aging transmission lines and distribution lines, you know, just get in the way of wind and things that are very flammable. So Australia undergrounds the lines. So huh. if you're if you are a power company and you're extending power to a, a new subdivision, you're digging a hole and putting it in the ground. Huh. It's hugely hugely expensive. Estimates here are 2 to 3 million dollars a mile to do that. Oh, wow. Um so yeah. there are many things that could be done. They just cost dough and that's when you stop. Well, and like the rich here, they'll just work around it. Like I remember those stories during the last wildfire flare up in California. The rich people have like these secret private firefighter companies <laughs> for hire for themselves. Remember that? Yeah, firefighters hate that because those companies are <laughs> yeah. in the way. They have oh. huge trucks. They are standing by, you know, with foam and gel to coat these houses. And that's what they're paid to do. But wow. they're also taking up space. Blocking the roads. They're blocking the roads <laughs> quite literally. And they're people that firefighters and first responders have to look out for. Yeah. You know... It felt like the Australian wildfires were very much top of mind for a week or two. Then they faded. But I'm seeing this report this week that there was a state of emergency declared in Canberra. It is still burning over there. Australia is still on fire. 26 million acres. I mean, it's kind of astonishing. Uh, 2,000 homes, 28 people. And it's still going on. It's still going on. All right, it's time for a break. Coming up, we're going to talk about Kobe Bryant. His death has raised a tough question. How do you mourn a celebrity when some of their past is controversial? What is on and off limits when making sense of someone's legacy? We pose those questions to a sports journalist who knew Kobe personally for years. That is after the break. You're listening to It's Been a Minute from NPR. We'll be right back. Support for NPR comes from Newman's Own Foundation, working to nourish the common good by donating all profits from Newman's Own food products to charitable organizations that seek to make the world a better place. More information is available at newmansownfoundation.org. This message comes from NPR sponsor BetterHelp, a truly affordable online counseling service. Fill out a questionnaire online and get matched with a licensed counselor best suited to your mental health needs. Whether it's depression, anxiety, or trauma, BetterHelp will help you overcome what stands in the way of your happiness. Learn more at BetterHelp.com and get 10% off your first month with promo code MINUTE. BetterHelp. Get help anytime, anywhere. 
Hey, it's Guy Raz here, host of How I Built This from NPR. How do you turn an okay idea into a better one? Check out the How I Built This podcast and my live conversation with Stuart Butterfield, founder of Slack and Flickr, as he explains the art of the pivot. Listen now. We are back. You're listening to It's Been a Minute from NPR, the show where we catch up on the week that was. I'm Sam Sanders at NPR West with two great guests, Julie Cart, reporter for Cal Matters, and Andrew T., host of the podcast Yo, Is This Racist? Also a writer for ABC's Mixedish. We understand that you might be late for your day job writing for that show today because of us. We apologize. Don't hope your apologize. bosses hear this. Your phone's yes. been buzzing. I don't know if that's anything. <laughs> Where's the script? I'm almost there. I'm almost there. <laughs> Traffic. Yes. Uh, I want us to take a second now and talk about what's been the biggest story for L.A. this week, um, at least my L.A. Um, this is the death of Kobe Bryant. It really hit me hard in a way that I did, didn't expect. Like, I'm from San Antonio, Texas. Lifelong Sorry. Spurs fan. <laughs> but lifelong Spurs fan. I remember booing against Kobe in my youth. And when I heard the news, I was crushed. How did you guys take it? I mean, the story this week. I was a little surprised, I think, at... And this is purely my own L.A. ignorance, uh-huh. that how much uh, Kobe meant to everyone. L.A. loves Kobe. Yeah, in a way that I, I had always, uh, I didn't realize, and I was talking to some uh, basketball fans last night, actually, um, who are not Lakers fans uh-huh. and who were very emotional about the situation. Yeah, yeah, I was way out of step with a lot of people in L.A. this last week. Tell me, uh, tell the me. tragedy, I mean, these children, I mean, to have a family wiped out in this thing, and, and it's just awful. And yeah. he leaves behind three other kids and a wife. I mean, that that's the tragedy to me, not that our, our mighty hero has fallen, because I used to be a sports writer, so I don't have any huh. uh, illusions about yeah. how human all of our sports heroes are. Mm. Yeah, yeah. And there were big questions this week about how to talk about the legacy of this very successful yet flawed man. You know, Kobe had an extraordinary career. He went from teen basketball star to Lakers legend. And after his retirement, he actually won an Oscar. And obviously his death resulted in a massive outpouring of grief. But it also raised some very big questions. What does it mean to look at a celebrity's legacy holistically? When you're mourning someone, are there some parts of their biography that you have to keep out? And who gets to make these decisions? Jamel Hill is a writer at The Atlantic. She has been covering sports for years, and she's known Kobe Bryant personally for a very long time. I put some of those questions to her. Here's our chat. Uh, To start, Jamel said covering the Kobe story this week, for her, it's been difficult. It's kind of odd in a way because as a journalist, as you know, you're... Your job is to be objective and just the facts, ma'am or sir. Mm-hmm. And the longer you cover somebody, there is just this comfortable, yeah. easy relationship. You build a rapport. They call you, you call them, y'all talk. You you talk know? Yeah. yeah, I mean, it, it happens. And while I did not cover Kobe as long as some people did, mm-hmm. this is somebody who has been woven into the fabric of all of our lives mm. because we've known him since he's a teenager. Yeah, and, and people so, forget he was around for a long time. A long time. You know, came on the scene at 17, and it's, it, it's it just feels so surreal. Yeah, I remember back in the day, because he started so young, I remember when he took Brandy to prom. I remember that, remember? too. <laughs> I, rem- I remember his press conference. I remember when he was airballing shots against Utah in the playoffs. Wow. Like, I, You feel like you see somebody at every stage of their career and life. Yeah. The story of how you two met and ended up becoming 
something approaching friendship. Um, it involves the Trayvon Martin case. Yeah, he had made some comments about the Trayvon Martin case where he seemed to give defense of George Zimmerman and he didn't quite understand the gravity of what we all just saw happen. He essentially said that just because he's black, people shouldn't obligate him to speak out on a black issue. And he was, you know, kind of in the camp of we need to hear all the facts and all this. And I'm just like, well, the fact is somebody went to the store to get snacks and wound up dead. And the yeah. other person jumped out their car mm-hmm. looking for a conflict. Yeah. So you call him out. I did. And he does a very interesting thing. He, like, DMs you and says, <laughs> what you talking about? He did. Kobe, uh, Kobe DM'd me and um, tells me to call him and, and leaves his number. How long was the call? An hour, which is wow. what really surprised me. But Kobe came into that conversation not only wanting to share his perspective but wanting to learn mm. and that's what was really different about that and about him is that he was a consummate constant learner you know as soon as we all got the news of kobe's passing a big question about how to discuss him and his life surfaced and that was whether or not we should or could talk about um the sexual assault case he dealt with a few years ago it's still an issue of discussion. When is it right? Can we talk about it? And how? Where do you land with that? I think it's completely fair to talk about it. Mm. Context is everything. Mm. Um, I realize that a lot of his fans feel like it's tacky to bring that up. But I think they need to understand that this actually happened. We all saw it. I know that for people who have a lot of love for him, that's hard to see. They remember a different Kobe Bryant than you do. I want to talk more about, you know, figuring out when it is appropriate to talk about those more unsavory details of someone's life. Um, A lot of folks said, don't do it the day Kobe died. Wait a little bit. But I wonder, is there a rubric or a scale of when to know when it's time? And does that rubric depend on the celebrity? I think it does. And Mm. and we also have to factor in the circumstances around his death. This Mm. was not Kobe Bryant dying in old age. This Mm -hmm. was somebody who died in a helicopter crash with his 13-year-old daughter. Mm. It's not the same because the circumstances are different, so excuse the poor analogy. Bill Cosby did a lot of great things, Mm -hmm. all right? The the, the support that he showed HBCUs, how he presented a different image of black life, black family life on television, that's a part of his story. So should something happen to Bill Cosby, Clearly, he's in jail for a reason. He's a monster. Got it. Yes. But there will be people that Mm -hmm. talk about the positive things that he did. And as much as the end of his, you know, sort of time as his public figure is disgraceful, we cannot erase the fact that he did do all these other things. You wrote a wonderful essay about your relationship with Kobe that published, I think, the night that he died. And you did not include discussion of the rape case. Did you I think with... I had a brief mention, okay. but you're right. I did not belabor and go into details. What was your mental calculus in figuring out how to, if to, talk about that? Uh, it was a struggle. And mm. quite honestly, I asked a lot of other journalists. Mm. And I tried to speak very clearly from the point of view and context of our relationship. Yeah. I didn't want people to think that I was you know, taking shots at somebody or anything like that. Mm. But I also wanted to be 
careful as to not disrespect survivors, disrespect even the young woman um, who was a part of this incident. You know, let's not forget that that's that's the other half of this equation. Exactly. And I didn't want to minimize it. I didn't want to, as we unfortunately do in sports, we tend to talk about things like sexual assault cases, domestic violence cases as distractions. Yep. And things that the man has to overcome. Things that the man has to overcome. Mm -hmm. I was like, you know who has to overcome something? The young woman who's on the other half of it because we don't know her identity or her name. And And she's she's not rich. So I was conscious and aware that as I wrote, it was hard. I mean, this is the toughest column that I've ever had to write. Mm. And not just because the fact that I got to personally interact with this person on several occasions and um, got to see his passion, his love for life and the love for his children. That's part of why it was hard to write. The other part of it was the way that he passed, Mm. uh, the fact that his daughter was with him, thinking about the other families on that plane and maybe because Kobe and I are separated by three years in mm-hmm. terms of age, it's going to hit a little different yeah. because this is somebody that is in your peer group. Yeah. And from a purely just from my career standpoint, having seen him just evolve yeah. from and I'm just going to for the moment put the sexual assault case out of it because some people have made it seem like he evolved from from sexual assault. I'm like, yeah. no, 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 no. Taking that part out of it. Remembering how cocky he was. Oh yeah, this was somebody. It, it was it was funny because when I did two sit downs with him, I did one with him at ESPN, mm-hmm. and the one question I was not allowed to ask him huh. was about his rap career. <laughs> that was the one question <laughs> they did not want me to ask him, and I thought that was hysterical. I was like, so I can ask him about the times him and Shaq almost fought, or I can ask him about like a yeah, number, yeah. but I can't ask but him. No but no rap. But no rap. What was his single called? Oh, Lord. I thought it was called K-O-B-E. And that's what I mean about evolution, is that <laughs> this dude, at one point, considered oh, being man. a rapper. Oh, man. <laughs> it was kind of the in vogue thing. There was a lot of- Everyone was doing it. Everyone, everyone was, doing was doing it. it. And Kobe got in on that trend. So to it. go from- you know, from that. To getting an Oscar. To getting an Oscar. He learned something. He learned he something. He learned, yeah. like, you know, maybe I should stay <laughs> in my lane. I kind of feel like, you know, in spite of the tragedy of Kobe's death, his life and his death and his legacy this week offer us a chance nationally to have a conversation about how to mourn celebrities holistically. And this could be a teachable moment about how to properly and respectfully consider all sides of complex public figures. Do you think America at this point is taking advantage of this potential teachable moment? Um, I think we learn about it in pockets. The problem with sports celebrity, which is, I think, a little bit different than entertainment celebrity, is that, you know, you you have huge pockets of fans that have been dedicated to this idea that this person can do no wrong. Mm-hmm. People don't want to make moral decisions when they're consuming entertainment. Mm. They just don't. People consider sports to be escape, escapism. Uh-huh. You know, you can go to a very serious movie about a really serious issue. People will go to a movie about 9-11. No problem. Mm-hmm. Discuss it afterwards. Oh, yeah. Whatever. Yeah. People don't do that in sports for it's the most escape. part. Yeah. Yeah. It's, That's es- so it's escapism. So yeah. I think it just yeah. makes these conversations about totality much harder. And. Having to question Kobe's legacy in that way almost means having to question how you conceptualize basketball for yourself. Yeah, and, and what how it you means. conceptualize your humanity because uh, the part that none of us really are comfortable wrestling with is that if I still cheered for this person and I know this was something they could have possibly done, mm-hmm. 
What does that say about me? Thanks again to Jamel Hill. You can read her writing at The Atlantic, and you can check out her podcast called Jamel Hill is Unbothered. It's on Spotify. All right, time for a break. When we come back, my favorite game, Who Said That? I'm Sam Sanders. You're listening to It's Been a Minute from NPR. Support for NPR comes from Newman's Own Foundation, working to nourish the common good by donating all profits from Newman's Own food products to charitable organizations that seek to make the world a better place. More information is available at newmansownfoundation.org. Why is it so hard to make new habits? Are pets really that great for us? Why can't I remember where I put my keys? Would you rather be given an award or a bonus? Answers to these questions and more every week on Hidden Brain from NPR. You're listening to It's Been a Minute from NPR, the show where we catch up on the week that was. I'm Sam Sanders in studio at NPR West, joined by two guests, Andrew T., host of the podcast Yo! Is This Racist?, also a writer for ABC's Mixed Dish, and Julie Cart, reporter for Cal Matters. Y'all, it is time for the hardest part of this show, mm-hmm. my favorite uh, game. Who said that? Ooh, who said that? <laughs> the smiles just fell off your faces. <laughs> Case of the nerves. This game is very simple. I share a quote from the week. You got to tell me who said it. Um, the winner gets nothing but bragging rights. Boom. All right. Who Can't studied? Because there was a. <laughs> I sent you guys a study guide yesterday. Oh, was I supposed to read that? <laughs> Shoot. I've been putting all your emails to spam if I'm being perfectly wow. honest. Sorry. Wow. Sorry. All right, let's get to it. Uh, the first quote. Tell me what animal this quote is talking about. He had already started dancing with the Baby Shark song a little when we got him, so he picked it up even more. Dog. No. (laughs) Play the audio, then you can guess the animal. I don't know. Oops. Is it a parrot? Yes, it's a parrot. <laughs> Parrots dance all the time. That's just that's that's a false okay. Equivalent. The Grinch that stole Christmas. I <laughs> no, I like it. Shoot. I like I like having a science reporter on. Well, Andrew's covering his paper, so I can't cheat off. Of it, so this is another thing I object to. I will so, say this is how broken my brain is. I. I didn't recognize it, but then once he started playing the audio, I could see the clip from Twitter that I scrolled by. <laughs> well, there's this clip with this parrot, like, bopping yeah. and singing to Baby Shark. So, okay, this was Henry the Parrot. Um, his owner is Haley Fowler. That's where the quote comes from. Um, Haley Fowler in Kent, England, said that after they began to play the Baby Shark song, uh, the parrot liked it and would chime in on the doo 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 and dance with it. I'm telling you, that house sounds like torture. <laughs> uh, who got that point? Andrew got that I'll point. I'll take it. Okay, you got that point. Such a cheater. Uh-huh. <laughs> Next quote, we're just going to play the audio. I like Mike. I lick Mike. Man. It was a political ad released Bloomberg? this week. Yes. Oh. It's about Bloomberg. It was about him. What kind of thing was saying those statements? You didn't see this? No. Another animal. Another animal. Oh, oh yes. The guess an animal. The, the dog that he put dog. his yes. hand in its mouth. See? I said <laughs> dog first time, just to be fair. Okay. Yeah. We'll, yeah. We'll, no, we'll, you win this one. Okay. No, that was. 
<laughs> You're no, trying absolutely. to make an exciting you said, finish. You said, you so said Bloomberg. This, I would not have gotten that. That audio was from a commercial released this week from the Michael Bloomberg for President campaign. It's a commercial of dogs endorsing Mike Bloomberg. It was the strangest thing. Play more of the audio. Mike Bloomberg is the man to lead us. He will create more jobs. Mike's not afraid of the NRA, not one bit. Trust me, Mike will get it done, yeah. <laughs> get it yes. done, yes. So the backstory to this is so strange. So Mike Bloomberg is running for president, but there was this video of him from earlier this week shaking hands with folks somewhere, and he goes to meet a dog that's in the room as well, and he shakes the dog's snout like it's a hand. <laughs> And That's like, like some Mr. Bean style <laughs> moves. So everyone's like, what is wrong with you, man? Don't shake snouts. Don't shake wow. snouts. And so in response to the hectoring he got over that, he released a video saying that actually dogs like Mike. Oh, man. He's co-opting the dog culture in this country. <laughs> he is. Yeah. He is. Uh, yeah, Mike Bloomberg. All right. Last quote. Tell me what we're talking about here. Love that look. It's our uniform. Has been for a while. And now you can buy it. I got this one. Go. Uh, Popeyes? Yes. Popeyes uh, streetwear yes. line. Popeyes released what? the line of streetwear this week. Oh, okay. Where Julie, have I been? Google Sorry. It. Julie, I want you to see it and oh, tell me if you no. would ever wear it. Google. Well, I can. It's probably not. It's if cute. they want it to sell, they don't want it on my body. I'm going <laughs> to say. Hold on. Let me show y'all the clothing line. It's kind of cute. People you think know. it's based on Beyonce's clothing line. <laughs> yeah. I I would say you could pull it off for sure, Julie. Thanks. Um, Thanks so that much. Look from, that look from Popeyes.com. <laughs> oh, no. Here, scroll. <laughs> Not even. <laughs> I, I can see you in that, Julie. You could pull it off. You could pull it's it off. It's a cute color. Popeyes. It if looks you're like listening. stuff that USC ordered and then sent back because it wasn't <laughs> the cardinal color that they wanted. Hats off to Popeye. Literal hats off. They mm-hmm. keep us talking about them. Sailor cap off to Popeye. <laughs> yes, yeah. yes, yeah. yes. You wouldn't wear the hat. The hat's cute. <sighs> <laughs> I would. I would wear the hat. I would wear the jacket. I would. Let's be real. I would wear all these clothes. Uh, Andrew, you won. Boom! <laughs> Proud of you. Congratulations. You get nothing. I'm not even going to give you a chicken sandwich. I get less than nothing. Less than nothing. Yeah. All right, now it's time to end the show. As we always do, every week we ask our listeners to share with us the best things that have happened to them all week. We encourage folks to brag. They always do. Brent, hit the tape. Hi, Sam. This is Lana. The best part of my week was that I got to go to the high Amazon and hike to a waterfall called the Gokta Waterfall. It was lush and green, and it was about a four-hour hike, but I had my favorite podcast to keep me company and laughing. Thank you for all you do. Love the show. Hi, Sam. It's Danielle. I'm 24 weeks pregnant, and the best part of my week was finding out that I passed my glucose test. The best part of my week is that we have finally closed on our very first apartment. I got to start officially a new role in my company that I've been wanting to do for a few months, and I'm so excited about it. I drove to Denver for the stock show, and now I'm home and just had a great hike with my dogs and my friends. Hey Sam, this is Bella from Washington, D.C. The best part of my week was hosting a Shabbat for 20 people. I cooked and I cleaned, and it was so wonderful to see everyone enjoying themselves and relaxing from a stressful week. Hi Sam, this is Emily from Anchorage, Alaska. The best part of my week was my brand new nephew, Ezekiel Tuani Tulaulu. Thanks, love the show. Hey Sam, this is Nick in New York. I've been in the city about six months now, and the best part of my week was going on my first date since moving here. 
He was incredibly sweet, and he gushed about Tony Collette completely unprompted, so of course we will be seeing more of each other. Andrew, if you're listening, please never mention this. Thanks. Thank you so much. I love your show. Have a great weekend. Bye, Sam. Bye. Marry him. That's such a sweet Marry way to him. show. That's yeah. incredible. It's really personal. Yeah. It's really nice. Marry that man. Lock it down. <laughs> Listen to me. It's your soulmate. Thanks to all the folks that we heard there. I enjoy these so much every week. Thanks to Lana, Danielle, Zanti, Reed, Judy, Bella, Emily, and Nick. I got to say, you guys, best part of my week, I've gotten into this pasta-making kick. I like to make it. And um, I made some this week, and it was the best batch I've made yet. What'd you make? What kind of, like, sauce and pasta? I made a vodka cream sauce. And the noodles, I kind of just, I I just cut them by hand. They're kind of like linguine-ish. That sounds amazing. I was really happy with it. Best parts of y'all's week, go. Uh, I got to work from home a couple days. And yeah, it was yeah. very relaxing. I bet. I bet. We're adopting a dog. You Yay. are. Yes. Yay. Send photos of the dog once you have them. I look forward to that. All right, listeners, we want to hear you sharing the best parts of your week on this show. Record yourself at any point throughout any week uh, and send that voice file to me at samsanders at npr.org, samsanders at npr.org. Thanks to my guest for coming in here talking about all kinds of stuff. Julie Cart, reporter for Cal Matters, and Andrew T, host of the podcast Yo, Is This Racist? and writer for ABC's Mixed Dish. Uh, you both did so well. You're first time on the show. Thanks for having Thanks us. Thanks for having us. Come We're back. a team forever. It was your stewardship. So. Yeah. yeah. Oh, I, I now have that. a job at your place. Right? We're only, uh-huh. please. Oh, yeah. you're, you're co- We're all coming back together That's only. Right. That's, That's right. our contract That's from right. now on. I love it. Come back anytime. So Thank much you. fun. This week, It's Been a Minute was produced by Brent Bachman, Anjali Sastry, and Danny Hensel. Our fearless editor is Kitty Isley. Our superhero intern is Hafsa Fatima. Our director of programming is Steve Nelson. Our big boss is NPR's senior VP of programming, Anya Grundman. Also, special shout out to Anjali's dad, who has a birthday this week. Sarish Sastry, thank you so much for listening and for gifting the world with Anjali, who we think is great. Uh, All right, listeners, thank you so much for listening. Uh, Till next time, I'm Sam Sanders. Talk soon. 